can encourage you. Turn to Romans 3, beginning in verse 27. As we look at this today under the title, Gospel Impact. When I was preparing for this today, I was sort of thinking, how do I get a, a sermon out of this? And basically, I found there was too much material to get one sermon out of it. So uh, we'll deal with the first few verses and we'll leave the last verse to the next time. There was just a thought too much in it for us. I wonder if you like a, a good joke, someone who tells you a good, clean joke. And it's nice if it was a good joke, as well told, it should have an impact on you. It should really cause you to laugh. And it's great when there's a really funny joke that someone shares with us. But sometimes people can share a joke and you don't just get it. I remember when I first, we first came to live in the Balamina area, uh, somebody told a joke, and it's a word you use in County Antrim. It was actually the word boast in a way that we don't use it in County Armagh. And therefore, I didn't understand the joke. And so, but what did I do? I just laughed everywhere. I didn't want to be the one left out. I just laughed, and then I asked Sheriff afterwards, what did that mean, uh, what it was saying? And so, when you don't get the joke, you can either just go along with it and pretend you've got it, or you can just be quiet and then say, I don't really get that at all. But we don't want to do that because we're afraid we might seem a wee bit silly. When it comes to the gospel, when people really get the gospel, it should have an amazing impact on a person's life in a whole range of ways. But a bit like a joke, sometimes we maybe don't fully get the gospel, and we just go along with those around us, but it's not really changing us. And so, if the gospel isn't something that really is impacting our lives as it should be, we need to ask ourselves sometimes, have I really got it? Not just up in our heads, but in our hearts. Now, Paul has been getting to the heart of this glorious gospel, this gospel that he delights in. He is taught that this is a salvation, not by works, not by religious duty, but rather it is a gift of grace as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, as people come to trust in Jesus' work of redemption, buying them with freedom, and propitiation, that word we're thinking about, where God's wrath is satisfied and propelled away from us by what Jesus has done by shedding his blood on the cross. Now, if people really have grasped this truth, if they have embraced it fully, then it will impact them in certain ways. And what Paul is doing in this passage, he's looking at three ways with the gospel in ways it should impact people's lives. And if the gospel isn't having this impact then the question has to be, have they really got it? So we're going to look at two ways the gospel should impact us today and one next time to see if we really have got it. And the first way the gospel should impact us is boasting excluded in verses 27 to 28. When people have really grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must lead to a great sense of humility and drive pride out of us. Moses was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. 
And that was no doubt due to his unique knowledge of God. He met with God face to face. His knowledge of God, his knowledge of grace that he received through those encounters with God caused him to be so meek, so humble before God. Are you humble? Has the gospel pulled down your pride? Now, let's think of why the gospel should stop boasting on the part of a believer. Look what he says here in verse 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So he's saying it's faith there. Paul is saying if we were saved by good and religious works, then we would have something to boast about. We could say, look what I've done. I did this. I did that. I did the other thing. And that has made me right with God. A salvation of works means that the focus is on us. But salvation is not by works. He says here, salvation is by faith. In verse 28, for we hold that one is justified, that means made right with God, by faith, apart from the works of the law. When salvation is not through works, but through faith in Jesus Christ, then the focus is not on us, not on what we do. The focus is on Jesus, on what He has done in His life of perfect obedience and His death on the cross. We cannot boast about salvation if we're Christians because Jesus is the one who has done it all. It's all about His work, the work in His life of obedience, and that work of redemption on the cross. The story is told about a, a tent mission. And when the tent mission was over, the missioner was busy packing up the tent the next morning. And a man came along who was troubled by about his soul. And he comes and he says to the missioner, I want to do something to get saved. And the missioner says to him, you're too late. He says, what? Are you saying because the mission is over that I can't get saved now? No, said the missioner, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you're too late to do anything to get saved. Jesus has done it all on the cross of Calvary. And you need to trust in him. We lay hold of Christ's saving work. We trust that he has done it all on the cross of Calvary. When he cried, it is finished. The price had been paid in full. And we receive this salvation through faith, not by works. And Paul teaches us in Ephesians 2 and 8 that even this faith by which we grasp hold of Jesus is not of ourselves, it's not something we work up, it is God's free gift to us. Jonathan Edwards, the great North American theologian, put it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Have you really grasped this? Has the truth of your sin, of your guilt before God, of your inability to do anything for your salvation, has this created a sense that 
Salvation is all of God, even that faith that I grasp hold of Jesus with, that's a gift from God, and so I need to be filled with thankfulness and humility, because it's not my doing, it's all of God. And grasping the humbling truth of the gospel should create in us a much higher view of God and a longing that in all that we do, God and Christ should have all the praise and all the glory. I shouldn't have the praise. Not me. The focus is not on me. The focus isn't on my family. The focus shouldn't be on our church organization. The focus shouldn't be on our church even. We live should all the glory goes where it should be, on Christ, on God. The problem, though, is that pride is a, is a sin, which is like a very persistent weed, which just keeps sprouting up in our lives again and again. When I was in, lived in Moy, we had a, this weed that would come up called Murr's tail or horse's tail, uh, and it was so hard to kill. Uh, I found the end, a mixture of diesel and Roundup did the job, and you had to sort of get rid of it. But it was so persistent. It came up through tarmac and everything and just spread and spread. And pride is like that. Pride is so persistent. It just keeps coming up in our lives. And the only answer to pride is a fresh focus and dose of the gospel of grace. It's being reminded as a believer that the only difference between me as a saved person and the sinner who's walking outside today with no thought of God, who's under God's judgment, who is heading to hell, the only difference between them and me is grace. That God's grace, God's gift of salvation has come into my life. And if it wasn't for His goodness, I would be that hell-deserving sinner walking around today with no thought of God. That is why boasting has to be excluded. Pride is demolished by an understanding. It's all of grace, all of God, all of Christ. And then the second thing is distinction abolished in verses 29 to 30. And this leads on from the truth which Paul assures here of people being justified through faith and not by works. Verse 29, Paul says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, Paul is teaching here clearly that the Jew and the Gentile alike are both saved through faith in Christ's work of salvation. It's through faith in Jesus, both for Jew and for Gentile. And there are two major applications that come from this truth. First of all, that there is only one way of salvation. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. All people are saved in the same way. Paul says here, God is one. 
There's one God, and He has only one way of bringing about salvation. Whether it's salvation for an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer, whether it's for a Jew or a Gentile, whether it's for a church person or a non-church person, salvation is only found in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That death to redeem, to buy people their freedom from sin, that death in which acts as a propitiation to prepare away God's wrath by the blood of Jesus so that God's wrath is satisfied and that we will not endure that wrath ourselves. It's through the blood of Christ alone, through what he's done on the cross alone, is the only way of salvation for anyone. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul, in his day, knew that some Jews could respond to a gospel message and be tempted to think, well, we understand that Jesus had to die for those bad Gentiles. Do you remember what the Jews called the Gentiles? Dogs. So for those dogs, those Gentiles, yes, Jesus had to die to save them. But for us good religious Jews, God's chosen people, people who keep his law, we do not need that salvation. And some people today think likewise. Yes, we are good, upright people. I can understand that Jesus has to die for those adulterers, those thieves, those murderers, people who have no time for church. I can understand Jesus has to die for them. But for me, a good, respectable, moral Presbyterian, surely if I do my best, if I live a good life, don't do anyone any harm, I will be all right. I don't need that salvation. Oh, how foolish. How ignorant is such thinking. Paul has been spending his time up to now in these early chapters of, of Romans to convince us that both Jew and Gentile, the moral and the immoral, are all under sin. All fall short of God's perfect standard. All are under God's wrath. And therefore, all without exception, all need the Savior, all need the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. God is one. There is not a different God to bring salvation for different people in different ways. There's not a, a different God to bring about salvation for the Jews. There's not a different God to bring about salvation for the Muslim, for the Buddhists, for the Hindus, or whoever. There is one God and one way of salvation to be found in Christ alone. And the only way that any of us can be rescued from God's wrath is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the only thing can bring us to heaven's glory one day. And anyone who thinks otherwise, anyone who thinks there's another way, there's a back doorway into heaven, they haven't fully grasped the gospel. Because the gospel is Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So there's only one way of salvation. Distinction abolished. Not a different way for Jew and Gentile, for the moral and more. One way through Christ alone. And you see, Paul has taught that, but he's working out the application of that so that people really grasp this, that they're really like getting the joke, that people really grasp what the gospel is saying. One way alone. 
But the second thing about no distinction means there's no superiority. The first point we were considering today about boasting excluded was very relevant, particularly for Jewish believers. Because the Jews saw themselves as superior because of the privilege of their background of having the law, having the prophets, having God's work in their lives. And there's a real danger that even when they became Christians, the Jew could carry into their Christianity a feeling of superiority, a sense of being better that would linger. Now, you can imagine if Jews come into a church which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and they have that sense of being better. You can imagine the challenges that would bring to church life. If not only they feel that they're superior, but they begin to act in ways that shows they feel they're superior than Gentile believers. It will certainly hinder the fellowship within the church and hinder the growth of the church. Now, Paul's answer, as is in so many ways the case, his answer is to go back to the heart of the gospel. He teaches us that the, it is the same God who's the God of Jewish believers, who's the God of Gentile believers in verse 29. It's the same God over both. And both the Jew, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers are saved in the same way through faith in Jesus. Verse 30. So they have the same God and the same salvation. How then can a, a Jewish believer think that they're superior to the Gentile Christian? Because they have a relationship with the same God. They have the same salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul elaborates on this relationship between the Jewish and Gentile believers in Ephesians 2. I don't know if you remember the layout of the temple, but outside the court of the priests, there was the court of Israel where Israelite men could come to worship God. Outside the court of Israel was the court of the women, where Israelite women could worship God. And outside the court of the women was the court of the Gentiles, where Gentile people could come and worship God. So, there's the court of Israel, there is the court of women, and then the court of the Gentiles. And so, if you went to worship as a Gentile, I think it's nearly we all are, we were so far away from the front. We were so near the back. And there were those Jewish worshipers who were way up there. What does Paul say has happened? In speaking to Gentile believers, this is what he says in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, but way at the back, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that wall which separated the Jewish believers, the Jewish worshippers from the Gentile worshippers, Paul says, is now pulled down by Jesus Christ. And so instead of two distinct areas where people come and worship God, they are one people united in Jesus. Jesus unites, unites what was previously a divided people. Now, what is true of Jew and Gentile believers is true of all believers within the church. 
This is where the relevance comes to us today. Jesus is our peace. Jesus brings believers together as one people. If we hold a superior, a divisive, if we hold a a bitter attitude in our hearts towards other believers, we haven't fully grasped the gospel. Because that Christian that you hold something against, that Christian has the same God as you have and the same salvation as you have. And when you pray to your God and you expect your God to hear your prayers, listen, he equally hears the prayers of that Christian that you hold something against. We fail to grasp that as we pray, they are equally loved. They are equally loved by God the Father. They are equally redeemed by God the Son. They are equally indwelt by God the Spirit. And realize this, when we hold a critical spirit towards another Christian, it is a sense of superiority that we have. Isn't that true? We're really saying, I'm better than they. When we hold a critical spirit, we're saying we're superior. Like the Jewish believers thinking they were superior than the Gentile believers. And Paul says, you're not better. You're not superior because you're all sinners. You have the one God and the one salvation. You see, when we have a critical spirit towards other Christians, it's a wee bit like a a group of boys doing a Maz test. And in the Maz test in school, out of 100, the pass mark was 40. And one boy got six, one boy got seven, and one boy got eight out of 100. Now, can you imagine these three boys getting into a row over which of them is the greatest? The one who got six, seven, or eight. The one who got eight couldn't say, oh, I'm wonderful. I'm much greater than you boys because I got eight out of 100. You only got six or seven. They're all equally failures. They've all fallen so far short of the pass mark. They've all done so badly in that exam. There's no room for pride. There's no room for a sense of superiority. They're all equally messed up. And that's a picture of where we are before God. We're all equally messed up. We've all fallen so far short of God's standard. We've all failed the pass mark, which is not 40%. God's pass mark is 100%. We're all down there in single digits. And there's no point in me being superior and puffed out saying, I am better than they. Because we're all fall short. We all need grace. And wonderfully, we can all have the same grace, the same salvation in Jesus Christ. And so when we grasp that salvation is not about how good we are, salvation is is not about anything we do or anything we achieve, but it's all God's gift through Jesus. There's no room for pride. There's no room for superiority. Failure to act in grace towards our fellow believer shows a failure to, to have properly grasped the gospel of grace. Because this is a gospel in which distinction is abolished. So, today we've thought of two ways 
We know if we really have grasped this gospel, if we really have been impacted by this gospel, not just in our heads, but really impacted in our hearts and transformed by it. Boasting is excluded. No place for pride. It's all of grace. Distinction is abolished. There's one way of salvation. There's no room for a sense of superiority. I love the definition of evangelism, which somebody has said it's one beggar telling another beggar how they can get a bit of bread. It's one beggar telling another beggar how they can get the bread of life. Can I ask you, is the gospel really transforming you? Is the gospel of grace causing you to be a person of humility and graciousness and forgiveness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? A friend of mine who is a minister and his father is a minister, he says his father says when he gets to heaven, the first question he wants to ask Jesus is this. How come the gospel of grace has failed to produce graciousness in so many who claim to be Christians? Well, the answer is partly. We need to ask, have we got it at all? Have we got this salvation? Have we grasped the gospel of grace? If we fail to deal with such grace and forgiveness and humility with each other. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you that as a church we are a family. We are a family which has the one God, the one salvation of grace through Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, we're made up of a church of people who we're all failures, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. But Father, for those of us today who are Christians, we have found an open door, an open door to heaven, an open door to forgiveness. That open door is Jesus himself. And Father, the fact that we have grasped hold of Jesus is down to your grace to the work of your Spirit, your drawing power. Father, we acknowledge that salvation is all of the Lord. We have no place for pride. We have no place for feeling superior. And Father, for any here today who have not grasped this gospel of grace, who haven't experienced the power of grace in their lives, grant it to be true even today. In Jesus' name, amen.